Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Donald Trump has said a lot of terrible things about Muslims, and one of his first acts as president was to partially fulfill his campaign pledge and attempt to ban many of them from entering the country. Trump, in this way as in so many others, is a monstrous person. But the notion that his Islamophobia was an aberration for the White House, or a mainstreaming of private prejudices long nurtured on the fringe, is a misleading one. As my guest Khaled Bedoun argues, in an article in the Columbia Law Review, the most brazen private animus towards Muslims has, since September 11th, been sustained by structural Islamophobia perpetuated by the state. The post-9-11 national security state that targeted Muslims here and abroad may have declared its mission in the decorous language and legitimate trappings of law enforcement and democracy promotion. But it was that national security state, says Badoon, that nurtured the brazenly racist private Islamophobia that has exploded to new heights over the past decade, and which Donald Trump wrote into the White House. Khaled Bedoun is a professor at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law and senior affiliated faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project. He is also the author of American Islamophobia, The Roots and Rise of Fear, forthcoming from University of California Press in 2018. And as you've probably noticed and heard me mention multiple times in recent weeks, we are now doing two shows most weeks. To do that, we need to keep growing our support on patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the dig. If you haven't already, press pause and go there now and make a contribution. We really can't do these two shows without your support. So to everyone out there who has made a donation, thank you so much. If you haven't already, thank you in advance. And now, on to the show. Khaled Bedoun, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. Before we get into your argument in depth, let's first define the term Islamophobia as it is generally understood. In part, your article is a response to criticism uh, that the term is imprecise or misleading, but you write that it sort of is what it is, meaning that the term is here to stay because it resonates. Where does the term Islamophobia come from, and what has the debate over it been? So the, the term comes from, um, there was a definition that came out of England, uh, this research piece by uh, the Running Me Trust, which was kind of the first, I guess, formal introduction of the term Islamophobia. Um, and it's its embryonic definition or definitions was linked to just fear and animus of Islam and fear and animus of Muslims. And that was gradually adopted. Uh, this is like, this is the post 9-11 war on terror era, um, 2002-2003 time, so a little more than a decade ago now, um, which was adopted by activists, adopted by advocates. But the term was really general, really vague. Um, and not doing the kind of work and not providing the kind of dimensionality that I thought was needed. 
but you do say that you think that the term is 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 here to stay that uh you push back against suggestions that it should be replaced by by something else for some reason or the other you know definitely has you know strong resonance within um you know a range of spaces whether we're talking about academia uh legal academia or we're talking about you know activists um the media uh the media space and so on uh in a rather short time the term has you know uh you know been adopted and been deployed by a range of different individuals uh, in, in a range of different contexts, whether we talk about England, whether we talk about France, whether we talk about the United States and so on, the term has, you know, has achieved a considerable and widespread purchase. So for me, um, acknowledging critiques of the term, and there are many critiques of the term we can talk about during the interview, I just found that the term um, was resonant. And based on that resonance, it was my objective to kind of build upon um, it's foundational understanding uh, and use it as a vehicle to, you know, educate, to, um, you know, illuminate as to what's going on with regard to anti-Muslim animus and bigotry. In your article, you write that the term Islamophobia is far more expansive and complex than mere fear and dislike of Islam and Muslims. As you define it, Islamophobia is also a process, namely the dialectic by which state policies targeting Muslims endorse prevailing stereotypes, and in turn, embolden private animus toward Muslim subjects. Explain your argument about private Islamophobia and structural Islamophobia and how the two relate to one another, because I think this really um, complicates the the common sense conventional wisdom wisdom understanding of, of what Islamophobia is. Yeah, so the popular understanding of Islamophobia is, is closely tied to what I define as private Islamophobia. And this is the kind of animus, the bigotry, the violence that is, you know, unleashed by private individuals, um, you know, individual citizens. And this is the definition of Islamophobia that is um, entirely fixated upon in um, the discursive space, the media space, popular discourse and debate and so on. But it's only one dimension of it. And I think that, you know, based on, uh, you know, popular fixation on private Islamophobia alone, it's began to become understood as deviant, as aberrational, as something that is, you know, entirely uh, divorced from what, was, what is happening from within the state uh, and what is, you know, what is happening within uh, government structures, both federal, state and local. So I conceived of and constructed a definition of Islamophobia that tied uh, private Islamophobia to what was happening within the state and defining Islamophobia as structural, meaning that a lot of the policies um, that were, uh, you know, formulated and, and, and enacted uh, specifically after the war on terror was launched after the 9-11 terror attacks are Islamophobic policies. So when we talk about the Patriot Act and we talk about counter-radicalization, when we talk about uh, the national security entry and exit registration system, NCRs, which was in place for a long time, when we talk about uh, obviously the Muslim bans one and two, uh, when we talk about the war on terror at large as a domestic and uh, informed um, war strategy deployed in Muslim American uh, communities here stateside, but also in Muslim majority countries abroad, uh, when we talk about the, uh, the the formulation and consolidation of the Department of Homeland Security, these are also Islamophobic um, uh, interventions. These are also Islamophobic institutions coming from within the state, which segues into the third dimension of Islamophobia, which you know I tab. Uh, are called dialectical Islamophobia, which means that 
by virtue of the state enacting this legislation, passing these policies, making these you know institutional uh, steps that uh, endorse and perpetuate the idea that Muslims are suspicious and are uh, deserving of surveillance, that that's actually affirming and emboldening the kind of private violence we see taking place on the ground. So during moments, and I think it's really key to also understand Islamophobia as being fluid. So during moments of brazen or explicit Islamophobia coming from the state, which we see, which we saw during the Bush administration, but we see far more uh, expressly under the Trump administration, that brazen rhetoric, this brazen policy intensifies the private Islamophobia we see unfolding on the ground in the country today. So uh, when we're talking about the uptick in uh, vandalizing of mosques, for instance, or violence towards uh, conspicuous Muslims like individuals who wear the headscarf or even Sikhs, non-Muslims who are you know, kind of caricatured and believed to be Muslims and so on. So it's, it's important to kind of view Islamophobia as this intricate system and network whereby the state, uh, by way of policy and so on, um, spurs and encourages the kind of private violence we see on the ground. Why do you think that there is this emphasis towards thinking of Islamophobia as just private individuals having basically bad, aberrant ideas about Islam and taking negative actions against Muslims? Why do you think that it popularly gets reduced to to that sort of level? I think two reasons. I think two reasons. One one of them is just. It's it's a it's a relatively recent phenomenon that discrimination towards Muslim Americans is a mainstream civil rights issue, you know, and it's become mainstream um, specifically after the the rise of Trump and the uh, the victory of Trump into the White House. Before that point, I think discrimination and animus towards Muslims was viewed to be rational, especially from the state, right? If there was legitimate um, or the, the understanding of uh, fear towards Muslims, suspicion of Muslims as being a legitimate and irrational fear. So we don't conceive of structural Islamophobia as being problematic because we think that after 9-11 that the state has uh, you know, the right, both the moral and political right, uh, to surveil, persecute, and prosecute Muslims. However, I think with the Trump moment, what we see is um, kind of a departure from that understanding of policing Muslims as being legitimate because of the brazen rhetoric coming from the Trump administration. So much of it is linked to... Um, Understanding Muslim American civil rights issues as a mainstream civil rights issue, which again is a, re- a relatively new phenomenon, which highlights the idea that knowledge um, and understanding of the plight of Muslim Americans in the lar- in, in the grand scheme of things is largely uh, yet unknown. It's 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 largely um, there's a shallow understanding of these issues, I think, in the broader um, uh, you know American Im- uh, imagination. Um, and that's obviously uh, perpetuated and in some ways, you know, collaborated on by this prevailing system of Orientalism, which is based upon, you know, obviously, uh, you know, peddling very one dimensional caricatured understandings of Muslims in Islam. So Islam- Islamophobia in the, the campaign against it has to simultaneously grapple with how Orientalism still functions um, and seeks to kind of flatten how we understand Muslim Americans and Islam in this country. So I think it's linked to those two primary uh, machinations, but o- but also more. I, I do want to talk more later about how it draws on the, the longer history of Orientalism. But first, can you explain 
um, concretely how state structural Islamophobia shapes private Islamophobia? Is it primarily through through discourse, uh, things like media and uh, speeches made by politicians and things of, of that sort? No, it's even deeper than that. I think it's, it's linked to law and it's linked to policy. So, for instance, if you look at, you know, some of the cornerstone Islamophobic policies coming from the state, you can look to the Patriot Act. Right. So the Patriot Act essentially is built upon this baseline that um, Muslim identity is tethered to terror suspicion. So any indication, any indicator of Muslim identity, whether it be through uh, conspicuous religious garb, whether it be through political views, uh, that are linked to Islam, whether it be linked to you know ethnicities or races that are linked to Islam, uh, we make the correlation that um, the, these uh, identities are worthy and must be surveilled under legislation policy like the Patriot Act, and that's continued with NSEERS, right? So this uh, immigration registry system where individuals from Muslim majority countries, if they were coming into the country, had to be tracked. Right. This is free talk of the Muslim registry that Trump talked about and campaigned on before he was elected and may very well try to um, you know, sign into law uh, in the coming months or years. Um, whether we talk about counter radicalization policing, countering violent extremism, which was a signature counter terror program um, carried forward by the Obama administration and so on, which was built on the idea that expressions of Muslim PD, Muslim conservatism, uh, specifically Sunni Islam, you know, raised the presumption that that individual might be radicalized, right? These are specific policies that come from the state, that come specifically from uh, the executive branch, the Department of Homeland Security. So if the law is built upon, counter-terror law is built upon the idea that expressions and manifestations of Muslim identity are closely tied to terror suspicion, right? It's the state expressing, communicating that to the broader polity by way of law and policy. And as citizens of this country, whether white, black, Latino, Muslim, non-Muslim, Christian, Jewish, or whatever, we're instructed to obey the law, right? That is the cornerstone of citizenship and residency in this country. And if you're instructed to obey the law and specifically counter-terror law, you're instructed to believe that expressions of Muslim identity are tied to terrorism. So that is structural racism at its core. The instruction from the state that that Muslim identity is in some way tied to radicalization um, terrorism, subversion, um, and potentially treasonous activity. In addition to, so that's the first layer. The, the second layer is rhetoric, um, messaging from presidents and politicians and so on. Um, and even legislation on the horizon. When we talk about the anti-Sharia legislation, uh, which caught wave several years ago, primarily in, uh, not only in Southern states, but Western states, Southwestern states and so on. Um, so political movements to introduce legislation uh, that ties Islam and Muslims to uh, terror suspicion. I want to talk about the development of Islamophobia since 2001. One thing that's really strange at first blush is that it seems like private Islamophobia has grown so much more visible and virulent since 2008, 2010 than it was in the years immediately following the September 11th attacks. And you noted in your article that as of June 2016, Islamophobia was mentioned 110 times um, in 293 law review articles, and the vast majority of those were published during or after 2011. Um, Paris and San 
Bernardino attacks are pivotal moments, but the upswing, I think, is really more around the rise of the Tea Party in the election of Barack Obama, whose yeah. middle name obviously is Hussein. Another thing that seems to be going on is that during the early years of the neoconservative war on terror, the state maintained more of a monopoly, a state monopoly over Islamophobia, which didn't mean there was people always refer back to Bush saying Islam is a religion of peace and that Bush really kept Islamophobia in check. But it seems like a different way to think of that is more that Bush's emphasis on this intense structural Islamophobia sort of sucked the air out of the room from the private Islamophobia while ultimately um, kind of seeding it over the long term. And that as the war on terror spiraled into this ever-growing number of conflicts and those conflicts produce nothing but failure and more terrorism, that that with the Obama and now obviously under Trump, that private Islamophobia became more pervasive and more explicit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think your your observations highlight the idea that Islamophobia in its three forms is really fluid depending on the strategy and depending on the messaging coming from the administration. Um, so even though we conceive of the war on terror in its, in its modern form being launched by the Bush administration, um, and we see the structural, um, uh, you know, expansion of Islamophobia by way of, you know, creation of DHS, um, enactment of the Patriot Act, um, by way of, um, you know, kind of seeding the um, spying on Muslims programs popping up in places like New York, NSEERS and so on, uh, structural Islamophobia really proliferating under the Bush administration. Bush was, the messaging was dissonant from the brazen structural Islamophobia in the sense that Bush was, you know, essentially peddling this binary, which is really toxic for Muslim Americans, right? The idea when he said that Muslim is a religion of peace, by virtue of uh, that rhetoric and that very famous statement that he made, I think, uh, in the direct aftermath of the 9-11 terror attacks, what he was essentially doing was uh, rooting this binary in which uh, we have the good versus the bad Muslim, right? Um, and the, and a, a, a historian by the name of Mahmoud Mamdani writes about this in a book called Good Versus Bad Muslim. A scholar by the name of Karen Engel had a, a great piece in the Colorado Law Review, which grapples with that binary from uh, a legal perspective. But basically, that rhetoric from uh, Bush was essentially stating that um, there are essentially two Islams. There's peaceful Islam and anything else that was that veered away from his construction of a peaceful Islam was bad Islam. Right. So what we what Bush was essentially communicating to um, Muslim Americans and Muslim residents in this country that in order to be a good Muslim, you had to do a specific set of things. There was specific metrics that you had to perform, that you had to abide by in order to be a good Muslim. And what, what those things were essentially were, number one, to disavow and condemn terrorism whenever a terror attack committed by a nominal Muslim had taken place. It was a duty on the part of Muslim Americans or Muslim residents in order to be a good Muslim, to disavow and apologize and condemn, always. Whenever something popped up, eyes looked, uh, the eyes looked towards you and you had to apologize and condemn. Second, you had to express patriot, patriotism to the United States, obviously, and place that patriotism atop your um, observance or allegiance to faith. So there was a priority in the sense, in order to be a peaceful Muslim, you had to be American and you had to overcompensate the way you express your Americanness by way of in, in ways that people did after 9-11, putting the flags on their porches, maybe removing 
um, conspicuous markers of Muslim identity like the headscarf for women or shaving the beard for men, not wearing traditional Islamic dress, uh, things of that nature. You had to you know, place patriotism for the country over allegiance to faith. And the way you did that was – the way people did it after 9-11 was to, again, um, you know, express support for the war on terror, right? Express support for the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, in addition to political expression, also religious expression. So, for instance, to shed um, or conceal uh, expressions of Muslim identity. For women, it might have been removing the headscarf. For men, it might have been not wearing a beard, not wearing a kufi, not wearing a thobe or a traditional Islamic dress. Um, and this binary continued under the Obama administration. So you see Obama, you know, using very laudatory language, very, uh, you know, uh, accepting language toward Islam in the immediate direct um, opening of his presidency. He travels to Cairo, gives these beautiful speeches at Al-Azhar at Cairo University and so on, um, talking about Islam in very glowing terms. Right. Uh, but in a, simultaneous to him doing that, he's crafting and constructing counter-radicalization policing, which is similarly based on this good versus bad Muslim binary that the Bush administration peddled, right? The, but instead of calling it the peaceful Muslim, we see the language under uh, the Obama administration shift towards the moderate Muslim, right? Moderate Muslim identity, again, was based on some of the same metrics we saw under the Bush administration. Um, again, political expression that was not critical, that aligned with the objectives of the state, uh, and again, religious expression um, that was not viewed to, to veer too far into Islamic conservatism or Salafism and so on. What happens during the third phase of the war on, war on terror under Trump is he entirely does away with this good versus bad Muslim binary and again adopts this clash of civilizations worldview where Muslim in general categorically is inherently bad. So once where there was once an opportunity to be a peaceful and a moderate Muslim during the first two phases of the war on terror, under Trump, we see a collapsing, a dissolution of that wall, um, no pun intended, um, and that any expression of Muslim identity um, was viewed as a bad thing. But why is it that it's around 2008, 2010, 2011, that yeah. private Islamophobia, like really like, you know, a, almost a decade after 911 mm -hmm. why is it then that private islamophobia becomes so much more visible I, I my suggestion earlier was that that the state had kind of take channeled a lot of the 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 islamophobic energy into the war on terror i don't know what what you think of that that analysis or what you think um really made made that period so pivotal i think there's there were some really watershed kind of shifts within uh the american political landscape that enabled that to happen. So we talk about the, the cultural shift in the Republican Party, right? And perhaps I'm even argue the uh, dismemberment, the fracture, the fracturing of the Republican Party by way of the Tea Party, right? So what the Tea Party did um, and what Trump really perfected was to adopt a very explicit and kind of no holds barred vilification of Islam um, and Muslims that we didn't see under the, you know, I would say the good old boy establishment Republican Party, even under the neoconservative role, uh, rule of the Bush administration, even though the Bush administration adopted many of the baselines of the clash of civilizations um, worldview, they didn't adopt the rhetoric uh, of explicit Islamophobia. It was tempered by ideas that we're not at war with Islam. Islam is peaceful. We're only at war with 
um, you know, a handful or uh, segments of the Muslim population that are problematic or terrorist and so on, right? There wasn't this categorical vilification, at least publicly, by the neoconservatives and the establishment Republican Party. Now, what you see in 2000, 2009 and 2010 with the emergence of the Tea Party is that the Tea Party broke away from that model and adopted a banner of Islam is inherently problematic. Islam is essentially encroaching and bent on taking over the West. And they adopted, uh, you know, the, this movement against Sharia law. So Sharia law becomes the uh, this uh, this villainous movement, which was looking to kind of overtake and encroach upon American ideals and so on. And you saw this rhetoric, uh, you know, eventually evolve into bills and legislation passed by passed within states by way of state referenda um, and bills um, looking to ban Sharia law. So this pivot towards explicit and express Islamophobia, first by way of political rhetoric, then um, legislative strategy within states, emboldens the private Islamophobia we see on the ground. So 2010, we see a considerable uptick um, on um, arsons and attacks on mosques, um, attacks on um, Muslim individuals or perceived Muslims. We see this new wave of anti-Islamic protests happening across the country. Right. Even in a way that was more vivid and more stark than the immediate aftermath of 9-11, because of this cultural shift within uh, conservative and libertarian um, movements within the country. Then Trump, I think, who is very uh, you know, conscious and strategic to realize that, hey, there's there's some political value in this explicit Islamophobia that the Tea Party is peddling, takes it to an, another level when he's running for president. Right. He adopts it wholesale, but is far more aggressive and far more intentional with his messaging. And as a consequence of his campaigning and his rise and then obviously his victory, that messaging endorses and uh, emboldens even more private Islamophobia. Yeah, like it's interesting because once I think it's very useful to think about it through this dialectical framework that that you lay out because it um, provides some analytical tools to try to understand some at first, you know, seemingly kind of like bizarre twists and turns in in the the recent decades history of Islamophobia. It seems to me that the reason that there's this cultural shift that you're describing around 2008, 2010, 2011 is is that structural Islamophobia in the first decade of the war on terror was really this um, compelling vehicle for 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 private Islamophobia to express itself through the through the aspirations and and ideology of the war on terror, but the war on terror really went to to shit, and um, was no longer such a compelling vehicle for private Islamophobia. And it seems yep. like at that point is when private Islamophobia really starts expressing itself more on its own terms, independent, more autonomous from the state Islamophobia. No, I, I agree entirely. I think that you see. Um the the expansion of structural Islamophobia, which in addition, right, so structural Islamophobia, in addition to the rhetoric from politicians, um, which again spurs even more private Islamophobia, that, that dialectic is really important, I think. And and then with with Trump, one thing that seems to be going on, um, obviously, as you make very clear, um, what's new about him is not that he's Islamophobic, <laughs> um, far from it, but but he is Islamophobic in kind of a new way for a president, a pretty new way. For a president, and it seems to me that one way to think about that is that Trump has 
somewhat collapsed the distinction between private and and state Islamophobia in that he's on the one hand the president and so controls these federal state institutions that perpetuate Islamophobia uh, via the war on terror and domestic policing but he mm-hmm. and he but he does so by speaking in the terms of the the kind of brazenly racist terms of private Islamophobia. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think you I think I wrote a piece immediately after Trump was elected called uh, the uh, the first Islamophobia president because Trump is very much kind of the everyman, right? The the Islamophobic you know archetype if you will, <laughs> yeah. who's speaking about Islam, speaking about Islam and Muslims in ways that the Islamophobe from, um, you know, the neighborhood or the specific communities speak the about Muslims. Islamophobe next door. <laughs> exactly. The Islamophobe next door speaks about Islam and Muslims. Um, and that's why I think he was so resonant. I think in a way, I think Islamophobes were really frustrated with how Bush, um, you know, spoke about Muslims, definitely frustrated uh, with how Obama was talking about Islam and Muslims. They might even thought he was Muslim, like, you know, many people have talked about and written about, right? But so Trump is the first guy to say, you know, hell with all this PC talk, hell with all this, um, uh, you know, trying to like, you know, construct this narrative that we're not at war with Muslims at large, but only the terrorists. He said it's Islam in general, Islam, uh, all of the entire faith as a whole that we have issue with. And people ate it up. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be. And you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Larry Website, The Dig's new Postmaster General. Our show, which tells the stories from the front lines of American class warfare and international politics, are made possible by the listeners who support us on Patreon.com. If you haven't yet, please go to Patreon.com, search for The Dig, and make a contribution. Even a few bucks a month goes a really long way. Only through donations to our Patreon and class struggle can the best of us emerge. Back to the show. You quote legal scholar uh, Munir Ahmad as uh, uh, writing that the state claims an intimate relationship with the nation. Moreover, the state has purported to act in the names of the victims of the terrorist attacks. How does the state identification with the nation and with the victims of terrorism shape Islamophobia? So the piece by Munir Ahmad was really informative to my piece. He talks about a rage shared by law. And basically the rage is the state is acting. So when the state launches the war on terror, it's acting on behalf of the polity, the citizenry who are victimized by terrorism. And he talks about it as like kind of a blood campaign, right? So the state is acting in vengeance to sort of redeem uh, the dignity or redeem um, the lives of those who are taken by Islamophobia, uh, taken by um, terror attacks. Um, so the state has this role whereby it's essentially projecting itself to act as, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the guardian of the polity, um, as a defender of, you know, uh, justice and the idea that it's looking to deter the possibility of terror, uh, taken, uh, taken or inflicted upon the citizenry. But once you dig deeper into that narrative, it fails to, to identify how the state is leveraging and capitalizing on um, specific incidents of terror, right? And these are, these are terrorist attacks. I think we, we shouldn't label 9-11 in a different way. We shouldn't label San Bernardino in a different way. We shouldn't label what happened in Orlando uh, in different ways. But what's problematic is that when we, we shouldn't tie it specifically to one religious or racial um, identity. 
But what's not talked about when the state is acting in defense of the polity is how there's a proactive, almost capitalistic uh, exploitation of these terror incidents to push forward and expand um, economic and political um, initiatives or mandates that aren't tied to those terror attacks. Right. So it's you. There's something opportunistic of talking about um, let's go to war against Iraq. Right. When there's nothing tied to what happened with 9-11 to Iraq. So these terror attacks you know, open a window of opportunity to unleash hell and launch war against anybody or anything that the polity views to be the bad guy. Right. So Iraqis are Arabs. Many of them are Muslims. They must be tied to the 9-11 terror attacks, even though these terrorists were largely from Saudi Arabia, had nothing to do with Iraq. Saddam Hussein is a secular um, dictator of a country, whereas uh, the 9-11 terrorists were tied to uh, the, the Wahhabi kind of tradition of Islam. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter at all that they're distinct. It doesn't matter that there's different political ideologies. They're all Arab. They're all Muslim part of the same character, and that's where Orientalism comes into play. And that's also true for what happens domestically, right? So it doesn't matter that, you know, um, Ali or Fatima who live in Detroit or live in Minneapolis or are college educated um, and, you know, work at a liquor store or, you know, work as an attorney have nothing to do with what took place in San Bernardino or Orlando. They're just tied. They're tied to these villains, these terrorists, by way of religion. And we don't view Islam as being a heterogeneous, diverse faith. We view it as a monolith. So there's capitalization on the part of the state to not nuance, not, un not unravel uh, what Islam is and who Muslims are, because it enables them to, to take forward um, and really seize an opportunity created by uh, tragedy and terror. The state, I think, also identifies not only with the victims of terrorist attacks, but also, yeah. of course, with the soldiers fighting the war on terror. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I'm wondering if that also if that conflates the identities of, of civilians and soldiers, if the state um, is is both kind of embodied by the civilian victims and by the soldiers avenging them. I have a more pessimistic view on how the state views the soldiers, to be frank with you, I don't I don't know if the state views soldiers as uh, genuinely speaking, at least as manifestations of uh, the state, not definitely not state power. Right. I think I think the state views soldiers uh, when I'm talking about the lowest level of the soldiers, individuals on the ground and so on. Right. Um, as um, means that are needed to carry forward war. And I think they know going in that these soldiers are essentially disposable. Um, especially when engaged in war that um, doesn't necessarily have a specific end date and that doesn't have specifically have a, doesn't specifically have uh, any kind of end game when we talk about the war on terror for instance it's, a more, it's an amorphous war um, and we saw that very vividly with what happened in Iraq right tons of soldiers were lost and I think it's also key to kind of you know complicate this conversation um, and invite the uh, the needed discourse on, you know, race and um, economic status, right? So these individuals, these soldiers who are viewed as disposable um, are largely the most economically and racially disposable segments of this country. They're largely poor, um, poor whites, but also poor and working class brown and black um, youth um, and young people who don't have many options. So I don't think the state is necessarily viewing this demographic as um, an extension of state power, I think they view it as a segment of society which 
can be disposed of and can be used as means to carry forward um, experiments um, and enterprises um, that you know benefit the elites, those those in power. And we saw that you know again under the neoconservative government of the Bush administration. Um, so that's, I think, the the dialectic between state and soldier that I find most compelling. Is there also another dialectic or set of dialectics at play between is American Islamophobia, which in which is itself comprised of of dialectics between private and state Islamophobia? So is yeah. there a, is there this dialectic between is American Islamophobia as a whole and right-wing islamic militant and terrorist groups like like isis how do how do the two how do the two kind of groups play into each other's narratives i think there definitely is there's, there's a range of dialectics i think one of the dialectic dialectics you identify that you know transnational um terror networks muslim terror networks are definitely wed to the idea of a clash of civilizations right um isis obviously you know, buys wholesale and definitely peddle in their propaganda to recruits and so on, that they're at war with the West, they are at war with the United States, which it pits as the antithesis of um, the Muslim caliphate they want to see, right? On the flip side, you know, Trump is dangerous in many ways, and people have written extensively about this, um, uh, in that he kind of subscribes to this clash, this clash of civilizations where he, view, where he views ISIS as a manifestation of Islam at large that the United States is mandated and almost compelled to fight against, destroy, um, and defeat in uh, this framework of a clash of civilizations. Yeah, so they definitely play into each other. And I think um, the, the transnational ter- net terror networks, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, offshoots of Al-Qaeda and ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram in Nigeria and so on, like these groups are definitely um, constructing a civilizational paradigm which aligns with um, the, uh, the Trump worldview. Yeah, I don't know if you saw it that when Trump gave this speech in, in Poland earlier this year and he was talking about the whether the West had like the will to survive and that it was bound together by bonds of uh, faith and tradition and it was really blood and soil sort of talk. And what he seems to be doing at those moments is obviously not only rallying um, reactionary sentiment in the West, but just painting the very picture of, of Western Christendom at war with Islam that is makes for ideal ISIS propaganda. And then ISIS uh, goes and does its, uh, you know, bloody performance that makes for perfect Trump propaganda over here and rinse and repeat over and over again. Yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, obviously both have recognized that, uh, you know, adopting that messaging is good for business on both ends. <laughs> um, so it's, 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 a, it's a cornerstone of their messaging um, and something they peddle uh, to funders, to, you know, possible recruits. Um and in this country, voters. Um, so it's worked. Another interesting dialectic is to see how Islamophobia deployed by uh, the Trump administration functions within, uh, you know, other forms of racial and legal marginalization, right? So Islamophobia becomes one of the pivotal campaigns or messages um, used by Trump to talk about how non-whites are threatening and potentially taking over country, right? So Islamophobia functions in conjunction with 
um, anti-black racism, with xenophobia towards Latinos. Um, and when you talk about tradition, obviously the threat posed by um, the LGBTQ movement for people like Trump and so on. So it becomes one strand in a broader kind of nativist banner and message being used by the Trump administration, um, which can be good. And we saw, we saw good developments of that happening because it's kind of forced new coalitions um, amongst uh, targeted people. Muslims, for instance, are strongly working with LGBTQ movement, uh, the movement or uh, organizations in a way that they haven't before because of this, uh, you know, kindred targeting by the Trump administration. That's also true for uh, you see non-black Muslims adopting a stronger uh, position on anti-black racism and so on. So with all the bad that's happening, I think that there's some good coming to fore with what's because of what's happening under Trump. And those dialectics, those positive dialectics, I think, uh, are worth discussing. I want to get to the positive dialectics. Something you just said reminded me of a quote that I just came across uh, for the book that I'm finishing up, which is a 2005 uh, border security alert from Representative John Culberson, a Houston Republican, who wrote, Al-Qaeda terrorists and Chinese nationals are infiltrating our country virtually anywhere they choose from Brownsville to San Diego. And a large number of Islamic individuals have moved into homes in Nuevo Laredo and are being taught fluent are being taught Spanish to assimilate with the local culture. Full scale war is underway on our southern border, and our entire way of life is at risk if we do not win the battle for Laredo. So it really it's 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 really weird, but but it's a very real, powerful thing how nativism and racism and national security paranoia and militarism how they really do kind of merge into a single field of, of, of discourse and ideology for the American right. Yeah. I think you can really, you know, boil it all down to, um, a real paranoia and vested interest to maintain white supremacy in the face of changing demographics, in the face of changing religious demographics. I think it's key to, uh, to note that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the country. Um, you know, in the face of, you know, what's happening with the BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement and so on, um, all of these different phenomenon, which we conceived have been talked about as being disparate and not linked, um, are very much linked and they're being linked by this fear coming from uh, the right and the far right uh, seeking to uphold white supremacy. So anything that is conceived to be non-white um, becomes a villain. Uh, and becomes um, something that needs to be dealt with. You were just saying not so long ago that that there's sort of a, a silver lining here, which is that an opportunity can be seized to build stronger and wider bonds of, of solidarity in the face of the right wing kind of merging all of these purported threats into one. Um, tell me more about what you see happening and what the possibilities are. I think there's a range of, of positive developments that you see happening. I think one is that by virtue of um, Islamophobia becoming very much now a mainstream, you know, civil rights, social justice issue, um, it's enabled uh, education about Islam and Muslims, whether theological or whether demographic, statistical and so on, um, in ways that are unprecedented and in ways that really challenge Orientalist perceptions and understandings of Islam and Muslims. Right, because Islamophobia is essentially on everybody's radar, right? It enables new discourses that threaten the ways in which people um, previously perceived of Islam and Muslims. 
Um, so that's a positive development, and I see it happening in, in you know in ways um, that you know might seem inconsequential. But there's a lot more interest in my work now than there was three or four years ago, right? When I was writing about very similar issues uh, back then. Second, you see um, you see it through uh, you know specific vignettes or idiosyncratic stories, like the rise of specific individuals, like Alinda Sarsour, for instance, who was not a a prominent Muslim American activist, but very much a universal racial and social justice leader, right? So that not, I don't think Linda Sarsour rising to this prominence would have been possible um, uh, three or four years ago. Third, I think that it enables, uh, like, I, like I talked about early, uh, earlier, new collaborations, new coalitions, um, which rise from urgency. Right. Um, and sometimes taboo coalitions. When I talk about Muslim American groups working alongside LGBTQ movements um, and organizations in a way that hasn't happened before. Now, more work has to be done on that front, for instance. I definitely think that um, that's an area that needs um, more intentional work. But you see at least gradual progress on that front. You see um, non-black Muslims working closely with black Muslims. You see uh, uh, Latinos working closely with Muslim Americans and so on. So these coalitions um, in many ways were unprecedented taking place in the coalitions that once existed, even becoming more, becoming tighter and more fortified. So those, those are you know, a collection of positive developments that I see that I hope um, can withstand and supersede uh, the Trump moment and continue to evolve even beyond what's happening now. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support, by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listeners' support. So, thank you. And now, back to the show. It seems to me like the Detroit area, um, given its history, is really a model for what the rest of the country can do in terms of building this sort of solidarity, um, where you have uh, one of the largest Arab American and Muslim American populations, very long standing in the country, that's really, in a lot of ways, um, deeply embedded within the area's broader array of social movements and broader left, political mm-hmm. left. Yeah, I was just at an event earlier today um, organized by Muslim Arc, the Muslim Anti Racism Collaborative, which held um, an anti racism training and workshop in the city of Detroit. Uh, and I can speak on um, what I talked about at that session. So basically, Detroit is a unique and special place because uh, it has triple significance, right? One significance is that it's 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 focal. It's the hub of the black experience in the country uh, for many reasons, demographic, uh, historical and so on. But it's also the hub and the nerve center of the Arab American experience. Right. You have the largest population, most concentrated communities. Uh, of Arab Americans in the country here in the metropolitan Detroit area. And third, it's also the hub of the Muslim American experience, right, with the creation of the Nation of Islam, but also uh, the various Islamic traditions that uh, immigrant Muslims brought in when they came into the Detroit area. Um, So by virtue of uh, this historical significance, by virtue of this 
the, the sheer size of these distinct populations really um, uh, intermingling here in the place in, in, in the city of Detroit, you see at least the possibility for forging um, strong coalitions um, that can be replicated in different places beyond Detroit, right? And setting up models by which um, African Americans can work closely with uh, non-black Muslim Americans, um, where Arab Americans who might be Christian, for instance, can grapple with Orientalism and Islamophobia with um, Arab Muslims, South Asian Muslims, and so on. So there's so much that ties these distinct groups um, that at least creates opportunities for progress that uh, you know can be had in other places and ideally can set up models that other places can adopt. To dig into the history or the prehistory of contemporary Islamophobia, you've said that it draws, of course, on this longer history of Orientalism. Yep. Can you explain what Orientalism is and how post-9-11 Islamophobia fit into that pre-existing set of discourses? I wrote this piece for an NYU journal called Between Muslim and White, where I talk about this era uh, in American legal history called the Naturalization Act uh, that spanned from 1790 to 1952, uh, when whiteness was a prerequisite for naturalized citizenship. So basically, you had a number of Arab and Muslim immigrants coming from, uh, you know, what we conceive of, uh, you know, as the Middle East, um, coming to the states as immigrants for a range of reasons. Some of it was largely for economic opportunity that was lacking um, back home in their native homelands. So when they came stateside, they had to persuade civil judges that they were in fact white to become naturalized citizens. These so-called racial prerequisite cases. Exactly. So the the, pre, the racial prerequisite cases, great book by Ian Hanny Lopez called White by Law. For those interested in this um, period and inter, interested in these cases, I definitely recommend that book. Um, so 10 of these 53 prerequisite cases involved Arabs. Um, and again, by virtue of them or a, a mandate for them to become naturalized citizens was to persuade civil judges that they were in fact white. Now, Underlying that um, obstacle or hurdle that they had to overcome was Orientalism and the understanding of Arab as synonymous with Muslim, right? Because one of the baselines of Orientalism is to reduce that entire region, regardless of uh, religion, because obviously we know that uh, a large number of Arabs uh, are Christian, are non-Muslims. Some of them, you know, observe um, minority faiths like the Druze faith, for instance which is tied to Islam, but is essentially a standalone faith. Um, many of these Arab immigrants who came during the turn of the century and during this, this period known as the naturalization era were in fact Christian. But they had to overcome this conflation of Arab and Muslim identity and persuade the courts that even though they were Christian, the courts presumed them to be Muslim based on race or ethnicity. That was an Orientalist construct. And what Orientalism is, um, you know, in short form is – um, this system, right, this master discourse where the West was viewed as the half of the world uh, that was progressive, that was linked to liberalism, that was linked to modernity. Um, everything was good. Everything was good in the West. And the mirror opposite of the West or the Occident was the Orient. And the Orient was part of the Orient was the Muslim world. So in order for the West to be progressive, modern, uh, forward-moving and forward-thinking, 
the Orient, its mirror opposite had to be everything that was the opposite of that. It was bad. It was tyrannical. It was repressive. Um, it was sexist and misogynistic and so on. So that was a system of Orientalism that existed. And when we talk about the construction of whiteness in this country being in mirror opposite of blackness, you also had this geopolitical construction of whiteness, which was in some ways defined in the mirror opposite of Islam. Right. So part of the one of the hallmarks of, 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 uh, of whiteness is Christianity, specifically Protestantism. Right. In order to be white, one had to be Christian. Um, and Islam, being a Muslim, which was racialized, uh, in addition to being a faith, would preclude one from being uh, obviously being a Christian and then have the possibility of being white. So Orientalism prevailed for a long time, was adopted by the courts. Uh, up until 1944, where we see this case called Ex Parte Mohriz being the first time that a Muslim um, from Saudi Arabia, and there's a range of reasons why, and I think we can talk about maybe briefly why a Saudi was extended um, naturalization and uh, ruled to be white by a civil court. But up until 1790, 1944, we see legal Orientalism prevail to exclude Muslim immigrants um, from becoming naturalized citizens. And that, and, and we Quickly, I'm, I know I'm being a law professor and being long-winded. Oh, no, but I love it. <laughs> Letty, Letty Volpe talks about this in a piece she wrote in the UCLA Law Review called The Citizen and the Terrorist, which was published a year after 9-11. She talks about 9-11 and the war on terror being the moment in which the state uh, aggressively redeploys Orientalist tropes. So the redeployment of Orientalist tropes is the moment by which Islamophobia, modern Islamophobia, is constructed. And I take, I take that point by Professor Volpe to also argue that Orientalism is the mother of modern Islamophobia. Islamophobia adopts the very same baselines, the very same uh, principles, uh, perspectives, images, and ideas of Muslims in Islam, but gives them a modern form. What is that shift when you say a modern form? What, what's the yeah. key transition from traditional Orientalism to contemporary Islamophobia? I think it's... It's a reflection of how Muslim threat is uh, constructed and perceived today versus how it was during, let's say, the heyday of Orientalism. So, for instance, when you're reading these prerequisite cases involving Arabs and Muslims, you see what the prevailing and most salient stereotypes of Muslims were in 1920 and 1930. It wasn't terrorism, right? It's, there wasn't the, ha it's, it's the harem, um, things yeah. like that. Exactly. A lot of it is like linked to culture. The idea that, you know, Muslim culture cannot be assimilated, cannot be conformed with Western American culture. Right. It's ideas linked to patriarchy. It's ideas linked to um, notions that Muslims won't intermarry with the low, with, with, with Americans. Uh, subversion. Right. That um, Muslims aren't necessarily wed or interested in becoming full fledged citizens. Their allegiance and loyalty is always going to be toward their homelands and so on. So it was fear, but it was more so a cultural kind of fear. Right. The idea that um, these Muslims would come in and change American values and norms gradually. It wasn't kind of, it wasn't what it is today in terms of how Muslim identity is tied to national security fear. It's a far more immediate, more violent kind of fear and stereotyping we have today versus um, Orientalist constructions. And just a quick aside for listeners, um, obviously the, the key text for listeners who haven't read it yeah. on Orientalism would be the book Orientalism by the late Edward Said. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a film, um, which I assume you've probably seen, uh, Real Bad Arabs, which is sort of about about Orientalism uh, in, in American film and popular culture. And two more recommendations for those interested. I, I'd highly recommend reading Covering Islam by uh, Edward Said, which was written, I think, a couple of years after Orientalism, where he talks about uh, the way in which the popular media uh, conveys and portrays Islam and Muslims. In a second book by uh, University of Michigan professor uh, by the name of Evelyn Sultani, who talks about these uh, representations and misrepresentations after 9-11. Before I, I let you go, you mentioned it'd be interesting to talk about uh, why it was a Saudi who was declared white for purposes of, of naturalization. And I want to I want to hear about that and also sort of about how this deeply structurally Islamophobic state, which now with Trump is run by someone who speaks the language of brazenly racist private Islamophobia, how it it's it's foreign policy um, interacts in a very kind of opportunistic um, and cynical way with with the so-called Muslim world um, uh, becoming such longtime uh, close allies with the brutally authoritarian mm-hmm. Saudi regime while then demonizing Iran or, or, or and just sort of how that how that foreign policy sort of gets um, kind of opportunistically articulated in the region. Yeah, I think I think it goes to show that even under the Trump administration, where uh, there's definite allegiance and mobilization of a clash of civilizations ideology, that there's always um, opportunistic departures where we can veer away from that ideology um, in ways that have uh, short-term economic or political benefit for the country. And you see that really vividly uh, with uh, economic uh, interest convergence with a country like Saudi Arabia uh, in the modern sense, that the idea that they benefit our economic interests by providing us with oil uh, will essentially drive um, Trump, but even Obama and Bush, to be fair, right, mm-hmm. uh, um, to not identify and not grapple with the idea that uh, the Saudi theocracy is definitely, um, whether it's direct or indirect, um, sponsoring the transnational terror networks that threaten um, not only the United States, but threaten <laughs> Muslims living in the in, in the region, right? First, see that. F- first and foremost, it's always important to remember that's who the victims are and by far the largest numbers. Exactly. You can talk about what's happening in Yemen now, for instance, with the Saudi war in Yemen leading to widespread um, famine, leading to you know very frightening outspreads in, in cholera and so on. You can talk about persecution of religious minorities. Um, whether it be Shia or Sufis in the region, um, Christians. We saw what happened in Iraq, obviously, um, with various Christian groups being persecuted by by ISIS and so on. Um, so the fact that the United States is making these economic exceptions um, to the country in the region, which is most closely tied to these really toxic and, and, and frightening transnational terror network groups, shows you that the war on terror is – um, not uniform and is it can be pierced if it advances short-term economic and political interests. And that's what we saw during the naturalization era, right? So the Saudi man who comes before a Massachusetts court in 1944 and has to grapple with um, this prevailing precedent that Muslims cannot be naturalized as citizens comes to the court 10 years after the United States forged a relationship with Saudi Arabia, 
um, and established Aramco, right? This partnership whereby uh, American oil companies would refine um, the infinite supplies of oil on the uh, the Arabian Peninsula, right? So the court that day had to make a decision. Um, they had two decisions essentially: do we continue this uh, position whereby we conceive of Muslims as being inassimilable, we can extend naturalized citizenship to them, um, or do we not want to threaten what we got going on in Saudi Arabia with Aramco and the Saudi monarchy, right? So if they would have ruled that the Saudi was not was uh, was non-white, if they would have ruled that he couldn't become a naturalized citizenship, what kind of message is that saying to their new ally in Saudi Arabia? So basically, we see interest convergence at play where um, they end this 154-year um, era whereby Muslims can't become citizens because doing so would threaten economic and political interests in Saudi Arabia, linked to oil. And I think that's just uh, ultimately a reminder that that all of this that we've been talking about, Islamophobia, is premised on and constrained by these 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 huge global political economic interests and considerations. Exactly. So it's strategic. Islamophobia eventually structural Islamophobia um, is strategic. It's a vehicle. It's a means um, that enables um, the expansion, the advancement of domestic war on terror interests, policing interests, but also uh, foreign, international economic and political interests. Khaled Bedoun, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the talk. Khaled Bedoun is a professor at the University of Detroit Mercy School of Law and senior affiliated faculty at the University of California, Berkeley, Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once was overheard saying, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeff Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, be the hundred-something person to leave us a glowing review. Those reviews don't just feed the Apple corporate behemoth, they help put us in front of new listeners. Also, please take a moment and go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the dig, and make a contribution. We can't do the show without you.